What's going on? Welcome to the Astro Hustle. I'm Corey Allen. I hope you're having a great day today. And I really mean that. If you're not having a great day, if you're having a bad day, just remember that a good day and a bad day both have to exist in order for either for them to exist, right? So if you're having a bad day, that means that eventually the counterpoint of that will be that you'll be having a good day or maybe multiple good days in a row. But that also means that you have multiple bad days in a row. So does that nullify the idea of good and bad days altogether? And does it just suggest that our experience of the current moment and that the dynamics of our lives are an illusion? Should we perhaps take a step back and observe our own existence through a witnessing mindset and know that in the positive moments in life and in the negative moments of life, that the true joy is to be found and that we are here and we are living? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe maybe so. <laughs> um, anyway, welcome to the Astro Hustle. Hey, um, real quick up top, they the, dropped a new t-shirt design. It's called the Low Key Quarry. And it's um, sort of like the, the older designs in some ways, but it's refreshed and revised and a bit more low key. So um, I don't know if you noticed, but on the, the, the actual podcast artwork itself and on this t-shirt design, um, the third eye on my logo has disappeared and the lightning bolts emanating from it have also disappeared. Not because I've got any less, uh, third eye, um, but just because I feel like that, that, that symbolism is a bit played out, uh, just in general. I think culturally it's around, it's all over the place. You know what I mean? It's getting a little too common in my taste. So off of that, uh, and it's just in my artistic nature, I cannot ever stop tweaking things. So I revised that logo. It's just the the uh, my head logo, and it's small, just in the place of where the pocket would be on a t-shirt. And the t-shirt only comes in uh, tri-blend black because you know that's what I'm trying to put out there. It's just blackness. <laughs> no, that's that's the color that I wear often. Is uh, what's on there. So there it is. Uh, go check that out if you want to grab that. Maybe it's a Christmas gift. I don't know. Seems like it'd be a fun one to me. If you just go to Corey-Allen.com, uh, you can check that low-key Corey design in the shop under shirts or also in the sidebar. It's it's there, available for you to click on and then continue clicking until it arrives. Isn't this kind of weird of buying things? You just click a series of, of, uh, of times on your computer in the right places and then things show up at your house. I was thinking about that recently when buying airline tickets. It's like, if you just take like 10 mouse clicks in the right locations on a screen, you can go then just drive to an airport and fly across the world. It's strange times, my friends. Strange times. So uh, yeah, check out the Loki Koisher. I'm stoked about it. I've been wanting to, to drop that for a while. So I hope you all enjoy it. Uh, today's podcast, my Dear Friends is with William McCaskill. Uh, this was a really great one. I had a, an, an incredible time speaking with William. He is a philosophy professor at the University of Oxford and uh, a huge figure in the effective altruism movement. Now, given that he is at Oxford, I recorded this at like six in the morning my time, uh, the afternoon for him. Let's see if you can tell. I think it was all right. 
Uh, I don't think that I, se- I seem too sleepy, um, but I really had an incredible time speaking with him. And we go deep into how helping others can actually benefit us and society as a whole. So he's got a lot of great information and he drops all sorts of, of uh, beautiful ideas here. And uh, also he has a book called Doing Good Better. If you're interested in altruism and a bit more deeper and more nuanced in this podcast, even uh, Doing Good Better, How Effective Altruism can help you help others do work that matters and make smarter choices about giving back. So you can check that out as well. Uh, all the links and stuff will be on the website. And uh, I hope you all enjoy this podcast. Uh, as I've said already, uh, I just had a brilliant time speaking with William. And uh, I think there's a lot of wonderful knowledge morsels to chew on and contemplate in this discussion. Uh, if you have a moment... You could be altruistic and shoot over to iTunes, give the Astro Hustle a five-star rating. Uh, I deeply appreciate that. It brings more excellent guests like William on the podcast, and it just makes me smile. Uh, it really does. Whenever I check those, I see him. It makes me smile. One of the ones that I, I, I was, I think it might have been the first time I was actually proud of a review whenever I saw that on iTunes. Uh, they always make me, uh, give me you know a little positive boost in the day i appreciate seeing them that people take the time to do it but this one uh this young lady said that she she said that i told people to uh think like miles davis and ride the groove of their own self-awareness now if that's what i am remembered for saying then i'm going to be a happy cory <laughs> anyway uh if, yeah if you have a moment to do that i appreciate it and uh yeah i hope you have an act- absolutely beautiful day um thank you for everything thank you for listening to the podcast thank you for sharing it thank you for hitting me up on social media and connecting with me i have a lot of gratitude for all of you all and uh i just feel really lucky i know i've been talking about a lot recently but um i've just been reflecting on it more and more and i just really appreciate uh everyone listening and uh the connections and people saying what's up and just how positive and constructive and and uh, awesome everyone is and i feel uh privileged and a lot of gratitude uh to be able to to be doing what i'm doing and just to to be a uh you know public spreader of ideas is uh, it's a great honor so thank you all for everything you do for being you for being out in the world and for being great And uh, until next time, much love, my friends. How did you initially become interested in helping others in the way that you're you're doing now, like just committing your entire uh, your entire life to it? I was always interested in helping others growing up. I think it was just a natural urge of mine. So while I was a teenager, I worked at an old folks home. I volunteered for a local scout troop for children with disabilities. Uh, But the way I'm doing it now only happened age 22. So I'd become very convinced of the following argument from a philosopher called Peter Singer, Mm -hmm. where he asked you to consider what you would do if you were to walk past a shallow pond and see that there was a child drowning in the shallow pond, that you could run in and you know save the child. 
And it would be basically no cost to yourself. The only cost would be that you'd ruin the suit that you're wearing, which, in fact, it's a really nice suit worth a few thousand dollars. And the question is, well, would you save in, would you run in and save that child from drowning, even if it was to cost you a few thousand dollars? And I think everyone would agree. The answer is like, obviously you would. The cost of $3,000 is just very small compared to the value of a child's life. Mm-hmm. And then what he asked was, well, if that is true for a child right in front of you, why is that not true for a child on the other side of the world, for example? Someone that you could, whose life you could save for just a few thousand dollars by paying for the provision of long-lasting insecticide-related bed nets, um, for example. And I found that very convincing. Um, so the, what the conclusion that Peter Singer drew was, we have an obligation to give away most of our incomes if we're middle-class members of affluent countries. And so I found that very convincing, but didn't really do much um, about it until I met one other philosopher called Toby Ord um, when I was a graduate student at Oxford. And he'd actually made this commitment. He'd planned to give everything he earned above uh, about what's now, in today's money, about £25,000 per year. And I was just blown away because finally I was meeting someone who was actually acting on these arguments and taking them very seriously. And I led, I ended up making a very similar pledge um, and then setting up an organization in order to encourage people to give at least 10% of their earnings to whatever causes they thought were most effective at improving the lives of others. Um, and, you know, as this took off, I started dedicating kind of more and more uh, time to this project, so not just my money, but also my time as well. Um, and I guess seven years later, um, as this message has really resonated with people, um, I guess it's now just kind of my full-time, uh, my full-time work is working on these ideas. I'm still an academic, mm-hmm. um, but working on these ideas and projects. And people often think that altruism is about self-sacrifice and making yourself feel worse, but it's actually been, you know, this whole journey has been incredibly fulfilling in ways I would have never predicted. Um, what do you think it is about, like, in Peter Singer's argument that um, the locality of the suffering that you can observe somehow brings you to take action, but whenever it's out of sight, out of mind, uh, people are easier to ignore it. Why do you think that is, and kind of what what can be done other um, than, I, I suppose, just trying to raise general awareness uh, to try and help people connect distant suffering mm-hmm. you know, to, to something that actually is connected to them? Yeah, I think the reason why it's so different is just because we haven't really evolved um, to have kind of appropriate model reactions or intuitions mm-hmm. in this kind of vast globalized world. You know, the kind of conditions that we evolved for are small communities um, where any sort of harm or benefit you could provide or for people that you know, people in your close area. And so it's just kind of very confusing, really, for us mm-hmm. that we can have such a big impact to people thousands of miles away. Um, I think that's just a very unintuitive fact about the world. And so then what can we do uh, in order to kind of line up the sort of good that we can do more closely with um, how we actually feel? So one is just, you know, using salient images. So when I was trying to decide how much of my money did I want to donate over the course of my life? What sort of commitment did I want to make? I just went online and started going through um, images of 
especially children suffering from um, tropical diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember there was one image of um, a child, probably only maybe 10 years old, suffering from admittedly a rare case of lymphatic filariasis of the face. Um, And the image was just so horrific. It just made me think, wow, if, if I in my life could just prevent that one thing from having that one child from um, suffering like that, then, you know, that would be, that would have made my life worthwhile. And then the kind of realization that I could do that, you know, many times over, uh, just that's kind of the moment that really sealed the deal in terms of making me think, yeah, I want to devote a large chunk of my life to this pursuit. Yeah, that's incredible. Excuse me, that's incredible, man. Yeah, I I did something sort of like similar, probably, I don't know, 10 or or so years ago, where for whatever reason, I was just um, thinking about the same type of thing, trying to resonate more deeply with uh, people suffering for who you're not connected with. And I randomly saw something writing about the uh, JFK assassination in America. And... Um, connected to that on this article I was reading was a, a YouTube video of the actual event. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to watch it real quick out of curiosity. I'm 35 years old. So it happened, you know, in America before I was born, but it's still, of course, deeply ingrained in just the history of the mm-hmm. country and the, and the consciousness of the country. So I watched this video and I was like, oh, wow. And it really penetrated me just thinking of, you know, putting myself, uh, in the, in the eyes of his wife, you know, Jackie and, and picturing that happening in front of you and just being, uh, amongst all these people and the power dynamic and the shift, the, the worry, just what that did, you know, the psychological ripples that that sent through, um, the country and the world. And, uh, and then just the, the grotesqueness of it and, and ended up rewinding it and watching it again. And it hit me deeper and I rewound it and watched it again. And and I ended up, I know it it sounds macabre on the outside, but I sat there and watched Mm -hmm. it about 30 times because the more I did it, you know, the more I had the exact same effect that you're talking about. And it really opened up this whole different door of, uh, of empathy for me, you know, just putting yourself right in that situation until you can't get the feeling off of you and, uh, creating that connectivity. Um, I know that, yeah. um, you know, it's, it, I think getting people out of their immediate, um, so idea of their surroundings, like you said, us evolving kind of to be, uh, dealing with our, our immediate tribe and w- the events that are physically around us, uh, and getting into thinking of a more macro view of the world is, um, is challenging. I think that fortunately people seem to, in some degree, be, um, understanding slowly the idea that and this is you know, I, I believe this too is that i i love how you stated that we are not you know whenever you you offer something that you have an abundance of your of, of your own means to other people that you're not losing that whenever you contribute and make the whole larger picture of humanity healthier it actually benefits you more than just focusing on yourself i feel like people are waking up to that uh, in some degree. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Uh, if you look at the psychological literature on relationships between money and happiness, for example, um, it is the case that money makes you a bit happier. It's, for people in, who are already in rich countries, the effect is very, very small indeed. Whereas things that have a much larger effect are, you know, having a community around you. Um, having a feeling of like greater meaning and purpose in life. Those are kind of much larger effects in terms of your own well-being as well. 
And so it's not always the case that helping others will also end up helping yourself as well. But I think it can have you know, an extremely large impact. And one of the things that happened since 2009 when Toby and I set up Giving What We Can was that this worldwide community grew, um, the effective altruism community of people who are really trying to work out how they can do as much good as possible, um, or at least with some amount of their resources, and then, you know, really trying to take action on that basis. Mm-hmm. And this has kind of two effects. One is it does the work of, um, you know, bringing the far away or the distant kind of home, because it means that you're getting a reward and kind of social support uh, for doing things that are benefiting people kind of far away. So it actually creates that little feedback mechanism between, you know, trying to do something to make the world better, even if the beneficiaries are far away from you, mm-hmm. and um, getting the positive kind of reward of, you know, people saying, kind of good on you, well done. Mm-hmm. And then it also just helps, you know, make the whole thing feel much more fulfilling, because now you feel part of this um, wide or global community of people who are kind of working together with this Shared aim, shared aim of trying to make the world better as effectively as possible, and that's just incredibly rewarding. It, it that's really beautiful, man. And you know, I, I my effect of you know growing up in America, and I have traveled, but um, mainly to first world countries, and uh, I, I know that those terms are sort of um, changing, you know, at, at mm-hmm. this point. But it wasn't really you know, the first time I went to South America and experienced um, uh, an emerging, you know. Uh, social situation i guess one would call it 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 was really striking you know it was really striking to see that difference and see um the way that that people are are suffering firsthand and uh, you as you said you know seeing it uh on paper is one thing uh, but getting for me anyway getting down there and seeing it in person was really striking and um it definitely interested me and it's sort of it's some of what um, those experiences brought me towards looking into these things, you know, and then eventually uh, finding some of your work. And man, I actually just last night I did the um, on your giving what you can uh, site, which I think yep. is a is a wonderful thing. I I used your your calculator on there where you can put in your income and then it tells you you know your income versus the the rest of the world. And I'll say it was it was really striking. You know, really, really striking to see to see that. And I think that's such a, a great resource you all put on there. So anyone that comes through can hop on there and just regardless of where they think they're at or what they're experiencing, that they can um, just get a, a little bit of a reality check of where they're at in relationship to the rest of the world. Um, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the most convincing things for me as well, where when I first um, looked at that data, I was a master's student and I thought I was really struggling, you know, a really poor student felt, right. uh, you know, very, yeah, very kind of down and out compared to my peers from Cambridge who'd gone to, um, you know, work in jobs in London. Uh, I was, I think earning, about, you know, on a, living on about 10,000 pounds mm-hmm. and a year. And so I guess about 14, $15,000 equivalent. And, I you know looked at the data. It turned out that put me into the richest twelve percent of the world's population, um, which is just absolutely shocking for me. And then when I you know looked at what I'd expect my income to be, even as an academic, which is you know much lower income than uh, I would have got if I'd gone you know worked at a major company in mm-hmm. um, London, 
it was still putting me in certainly the richest two percent of the world's population, probably in the richest one percent. Um, and that was really mind blowing because, you know, we talk so much about global inequality and, uh, or even domestic inequality, and the Occupy movement was protesting the one percent. Whereas I think what was often lost is most people in, you know, if you're middle class in a rich country like the US or the UK, you are in the richest few percent of the world's population. And we don't appreciate that because so much of the world's poor are, you know, living in countries where you don't really get to interact with them. Um, but that is the fact of the world today where just through luck of where we've been born, we have this, you know, incredibly powerful opportunity to help others just in virtue of having so much wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I was actually thinking about last night around that was, um, you know, thinking of where is the, the ratio of the other people, you know, who, who are not in that 1% or in that 0.3%. And I began thinking, and I'm sort of like, exposing my own ignorance to myself and thinking, well, all right, there's, you know, 350 million people in America, uh, you know, and, and of course, I think a large part of, of Europe and the UK are in similar economic positions. And I thought, all right, that accounts for, uh, you know, 500 million people. Uh, and I started thinking of, well, where are the other 6 billion seven seven billion people in the world who are, uh, on the other side of that table. I thought, of course, you know, India is some parts of South America, some parts of Asia. Um, could you talk a little bit about more just globally so people get an idea of just how many people are out there beyond uh, the horizon of what people think of who are these people we're talking about who are on the other side of that, that ratio? Uh, yeah, sure. So what the World Bank uses to measure extreme poverty is people who live on $1.90 per day, where what that $1.90 means is the total value of everything you consume, uh, where firstly that's adjusted for kind of purchasing power, so adjusted for the fact that money goes further in poor countries. So it's the equivalent of what $1.90 would buy you in the US. Um, and then it also takes into account anything you grow yourself, or um, you know even if you scavenge something from a dump, let's say, mm -hmm. that would count towards your $1.90. And on the World Bank's estimate, there's 700 million people living below that extreme poverty line. And when they first updated that number, that was actually you know great news. The number of people living below that poverty line has decreased dramatically um, in the previous 20 years. So we're actually growing fantastically. We're making amazing progress in terms of improving uh, the wealth of an income of the poorest people in the world. But still 700 million people. Um, it's still a huge uh, number of people who are living on what's really an almost unimaginably small um, amount of money every day. And in terms of the location of those people, very large number than in India. I mean, when thinking about global geography, it's easier to think of India as like a continent rather mm -hmm. than its own country because it has a billion people. So I think about two to three hundred million um, of the people who are living below that poverty line are in India. Um, and then the large majority of the rest are in sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, countries like uh, Ethiopia, mm -hmm. uh, Kenya, Central African Republic, um, Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria, Niger. Um, and what's notable is that, like, you know, people often think of, well, 
poverty is just this kind of natural state of things. Some countries are just never getting a bit richer. But that's just not true. Over the last 60 years, we've seen some really amazing um, success stories in terms of countries going from being in a very poor position to now being very wealthy. So even Japan or South Korea, which are now countries that are as rich as the UK, um, in the middle of the 20th century were extremely poor. You look at you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, Singapore, um, and now in you know, sub-Saharan Africa, Botswana as well, um, you actually can see stories of incredible growth. And so the picture is at the same time uh, you know, a disturbing one, seeing how many people are uh, below uh, below that poverty line and living in such extreme conditions. But, you know, there are also grounds for optimism. We are making progress in this. And what we're trying to do is just speed up that progress, try and get to a situation where everyone has at least a very minimal standard of living um, as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's amazing you say a dollar ninety. I think is that what you said the the daily. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, you know, it costs it costs twenty dollars an hour to exist in America. You know, and the amount of like just, and I mean that in a in a kind of a sarcastic way. You know, and the mm-hmm. amount of times where I'll I just personally I'll be out in in life doing something, and I'll be like, oh well, this is only ten bucks, and I need to think twice about that. You know, and you're, yeah. you're literally spending almost a, a week's worth of of um, life resource for someone just on a on a goof. You know, well, this cocktail yeah, is sixteen exactly. bucks. So I'm just gonna gonna get another one of those. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you know, yeah, that's a couple of days of living for the family of four. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, unbelievable. Yeah, the way I yeah the way I tend to think about it is. Um, that people in a t- on a typical income in the United States are about 100 times richer than the poorest 700 million people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that actually means in terms of, you know, again, that's kind of really disturbing, but also means we just have this amazing ability to do good because um, simply by taking, you know, one dollar that I would have spent and put it in the hands of one of those people in the poorest 700 million, you're having a hundred times as much of an impact that hundred, that $1 is worth a hundred times as much for that, um, extremely poor person as it, as it is for me. And that's justified by many ways of looking at the relationship between money and happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and I, I really, I, I saw something interesting, uh, just in life where, you know, we, we equate, especially, especially in America, you know, wealth, you know, financial wealth to happiness. But of course, everyone knows that at a, at a very, very small level, as you mentioned earlier, that's just not the case. And if anything, you know, people who I know who are, um, you know, multimillionaires often face more turmoil, more dramatic type of uh, life dynamics, more suffering and more worry because there's that in Buddhism, there's this, this, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, jealous God realm where you're okay, you've got mm-hmm. the material positions and now your suffering comes worrying about losing all of your material possessions. Right. Um, and so anyway, you know, happiness is so much in, in my opinion, my experience, a, a point of view, you know, it comes from self-realization and realizing getting a view outside of yourself and how you fit into this larger picture of the world and just your own your own very existential existence as well once you begin to appreciate you know the present moment and your own life um 
just the fact that you have awakened amongst the chaos of the universe and you get to experience this brings in uh, a gratitude, which I believe uh, is a large part of where that feeling of happiness that we're all talking about, you know, that's locked in semantic baggage of, of, you know, decades and decades and decades ago actually begins to become uh, accessible in some way. And I saw that in this degree in, in Europe just a, co- a couple of months ago, I was, um, in out, outdoors in Italy. I, th- I think I might've been in Rome and there's, um, a lot of people from Northern Africa, you know, have been, have been immigrating there. And I was looking at these fellows just in, of course, in Italy, there's, it's beautiful in that there's, um, freshwater fountains, you know, all over the place, just often running there. And, um, I was in an area and I was, I was standing there and I, I was looking at these African gentlemen who were all kind of laying down and just resting up against a, a fence that was there. And they were all really happy and you could tell that they were homeless there, but they were smiling, they were laughing, they were just kind of stretched out and, um, just relaxing. And I thought, wow, that's, um, that's amazing that they're, they seem so upbeat, you know, <laughs> given that they were homeless. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that, you know, what they were coming from, you know, the, the suffering that they had experienced in their home country of, they were doing the same thing that they were doing in Italy there, but it was in much worse conditions and there was no clean water and there's mm-hmm. often war and there's illnesses and uh, no food around, even if you had the money for that. And that to them, you know, where they were at there, they were sure they were still outside, but there was literally a spigot of fresh, beautiful water running ne- right next to them. There was no threats. There was peace. There's no illness moving around and there's food everywhere. And it really made me, I was just looking at this mm-hmm. guy thinking, wow, it's, it's incredible that just his point of view is what's making him happier than so many people in the world who have the luxury of, uh, of material wealth. I mean, absolutely. So psychologists talk about, you know, a few phenomena that are relevant to this. So one is hedonic adaptation. The idea that just if you get, say, you know, more resources, more wealth, you buy a bigger house and so on, you very quickly get used to that. It just becomes the norm for you. And you might get a short boost in happiness from buying new things, but then you quickly go down to the kind of base level. And what's really striking is that um, the much more substantial and lasting ways of increasing happiness often just don't really involve money at all. So you know, one is mind, one is you know, meditating, being mindful. Another is having gratitude, so appreciating um, even if you know, even if things aren't going as well for you now. Thinking what's actually like the whole reference class, how bad things could be, could things be? And being grateful for all the good things that you still do have in life. Um, so perhaps, you know, you'll lose your job, but you could, that's obviously terrible. But one thing you can do is focus on it. But the way that's going to be more beneficial to your own mood and mental health is appreciating all the good things, you know, your friends and family that you still have and um, being grateful for them. And then other simple things like exercise, having good friends, um, you know, having a loving partner, having a good sex life, all of these things are, um, you know, pretty much free or um, don't cost very much at all. And uh, in contrast, having material goods like, you know, a large house, your own boat, <laughs> nice mm-hmm. a car and so on, they just tend to have very um, 
very little in the way of lasting impacts on your own um, well-being. And I do think it's a shame that uh, we do have this kind of consumerist culture where, you know, those huge portions of the economy are dedicated to sending us messages telling us that the way to achieve a happy or meaningful life is to buy stuff that we don't need that doesn't actually have an impact on um, our own lives. Mm. Uh, and I think that, yeah, it's a much more kind of enlightened state to appreciate that actually that's all just not true. And, um, yeah, having this attitude of gratitude or just engaging in kind of many simple things that don't cost a lot of money um, is actually a much uh, more reliable way of, you know, having a happier life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's astonishing how just being self-reflective over time can create so many of those things that you're talking about, you know, raising this type of self-awareness and um, being able to see uh, outside of yourself and manage the the arising kind of, you know, the um, symptom of our evolving mind, you know, as you mentioned, like losing your job, one could look at that and think, Oh God, how am I going to get my biological survival tickets, you know, moving forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another perspective to look at that is say, Hey, um, uh, this could be a great opportunity for me to step out of the momentum of a life that I, I may not have been completely happy with. And, Mm-hmm. go for the thing I'd always wanted, you know, now's the time. And, and that's, it's incredible how just that shift in, in mindset can, it really defines everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another result from psychology is that, uh, when we think about bad things happening to us, we think that they're going to be much worse than they actually are. And similarly, when we think about good things happening to us, we think they're going to be much better for us than mm-hmm. we are. <laughs> right. But actually people's happiness is just relatively stable across different life events. Mm-hmm. And the reason we make that mistake, so I call it, just call it a focusing illusion, where it's because when you, when if I ask you, you know, how bad would it be to lose your job, say, then you just think, oh, this is the badness of losing a job, and you forget about all the ways in which your life will be continuous. Mm-hmm. You also forget about, you know, the potential, like you say, potential good effects of losing your job and so on. And so that kind of realization that actually you know, the level of happiness you're going to have is remarkably stable over time. It still does fluctuate, but is remarkably stable over time is again, I think a very liberating one. It is. Yeah. I I love that. That idea of the focusing illusion. I think that's such a powerful thing to keep in mind, you know, um, because it's, it is, it is true of course. And, uh, the, I I tend to laugh, you know, as far as you mentioned the hedonic treadmill earlier, Uh, Mm -hmm. I like to kind of have fun with that just from our own natural proclivity towards melting into that shape against our will sometimes is that I, I don't remember what it was, but recently I got something, you know, some new item or something. And I was joking with a friend of man, I can't wait to, for that new you know laptop to show up so that I can enjoy it uh, for a couple of weeks and to begin to resent any time <laughs> that I don't have it around. This is going to be a fun cycle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and that's just true for you know for so many things, um, especially you know I know someone who you know redid their room and like paid thousands of pounds to um, completely kind of make over um, one of the rooms in their house. Then there's just this like, tiny floor with it, the light fitting that just didn't fit quite right. And there wasn't an obvious way that you could fix it. And they were so upset. <laughs> they were, um, so upset. Like, and that was the thing that like really stood out to them. The one kind of failure that uh-huh. um, this um, makeover had rather than the, you know, 
the benefits for it. So, you know, the human brain is just incredibly good at um, getting used to what is now the norm and just um, calibrating with respect to that and then um, only, you know, judging things by the negatives mm-hmm. um, compared to that baseline. Yeah, I, I suppose it's good in the sense of like um, technological progress and, and things like that, where it has potential to be or artistic progress. Um, but God, whenever you're dealing with the self, you know, it's it's great to be able to polish that lens a little bit and, and refocus. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what do you what do you think about some of the misconceptions people have about altruism? I think, yeah, one of the biggest ones is that altruism necessarily involves self-sacrifice. And partly that's just a definitional matter, but I really think we sh- the definition of altruism we should have is not about self-sacrifice. So I want people to be more altruistic. If in the course of being altruistic that benefits you as well, that's a bonus. It's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe it's the case that, you know, suppose you want to do good with your career and suppose you're planning a certain sort of path in life maybe by thinking about it more there's something that you can do that will both help the world more and benefit you more if so that's great we should Mm -hmm. be kind of celebrating that Mm -hmm. rather than thinking that if you want to be a good person that necessarily involves um you know really making life hard on yourself Mm -hmm. or vice versa by assuming that if you have done something that involves a lot of self-sacrifice then you're necessarily doing something that's very good Mm -hmm. the two are just you know totally distinct yeah, um, and then I think the second, uh, I think the second kind of big misconception is just that you know, kind of all acts of altruism are equal, and like what really matters is just kind of good intentions. Because the thing that you know I try and emphasize as much as possible is we should really be concerned about outcomes. Um, you know, when it's you're engaging in altruism, the point is to make the world better and improve the lives of others. It's you know, it's not really about you. Um, and that means even if you're very well-intentioned, if you do the wrong thing, um, or do less good than you could have done, um, you know, that's really important. We should be trying to focus not just on doing something, but trying to do the most that we can to improve the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's funny to me just to get a mental image of sort of what you're describing here, because, you know, the experience of people thinking that they're going to suffer by you know, giving something that is an excess to them is like mm-hmm. literally is kind of silly as them having a giant plate of food, one that's like so filled that they couldn't possibly eat it all. And they eat it and shove it in and shove it in and shove it in mm-hmm. and all the cakes and the desserts and everything until they're literally feeling sick. But their plate still has, you know, huge mountains on there. And then there's some other people who are coming by who are poor and they're like, well, no, I don't want to give that away. I feel sick mm-hmm. from, the, you know, from the eating of excess. But, you know, it's like, no, no, no. If you give that away, you not only... Uh, will other people benefit greatly, but you literally won't even notice. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. Um, yeah, I absolutely love that analogy of the huge plate of food. I might use it please do. Um, in future. Yeah, please. And do. it's interesting. Yeah. You mentioned Buddhism earlier. I mean, it is interesting how much, you know, certain slams, at least of Buddhist thought start to converge with uh, thought and the effect of altruist community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in kind of two distinct ways that you would think would be unrelated. One is about how, um, you know, achieving true happiness just doesn't really rely on material goods. 
um, or that's, you know, a pretty bad path to that. And then second is this idea of just kind of impartiality across all sentient creatures, mm-hmm. appreciating that there isn't really this kind of fundamental distinction between me and you. You know, there's nothing fundamentally different between, in terms of the relationship between me and you and between me age 30 and me age 70. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a kind of matter of degree. And once you realize that this concept of a person um, is in some sense an illusion, uh, that, you know, naturally leads you to thinking, to, you know, to having a much kind of wider kind of circle of empathy or compassion. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, so it has been something that's been interesting to me, even though these ideas were developed quite independently of Buddhist thought. Um, there are, you know, notable ways in which at least some aspects of them have quite a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Buddhism is sneaky like that, man. It, 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 <laughs> it, it like it somehow resonates with all of these, you know, these massive ideas which are now finding a lot of scientific verification, and that we're we think that we're waking up to as a global society now. Um, Buddhism figured out, you know, that, uh, centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you now you're really speaking my language, you know, speaking of the self being an illusion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is something I've spent a lot of time thinking on. And uh, I really do think that that, you know, it, people, I think in the same way that you, someone might be unsettled by the idea of altruism to begin with because they think that they're giving away something of themselves. I think that fits and correlates directly with the idea of, you know, ontological phenomenological pursuits and, you know, the idea of the self and the I and things of that nature, because, you know, this is one of the growing pains that people encounter, as you surely know, in philosophy is whenever someone begins to entertain the question of, well, you know, what is the self? Who, who where is the ego? What is the mm-hmm. wave of consciousness inside of this meat suit called William? You know, what is that yeah, thing? Yeah. And, and what is the separation between it and the rest of humanity or the rest of the cosmos? And I feel like one of you begin to get that viewpoint outside of yourself and you wake up to the fact that you are just a, a nerve cell of a divine network of uh, you know interconnected infinity of the churning uh, you know rolling wave of humanity and it's it's not about your personality but it's about you are the as Alan Watts said you know the apple falling from the tree of humanity that turns into soil and that more apples grow you know it's not the same apple but it's still appling and that is mm-hmm. the life force of all things flowing on, right? So people hear that idea and it divorces them from their idea, their self-identification and it, it challenges an idea of who they thought they were and who they, what they thought they are. And there's literally a mourning period there because, you know, the dying of the idea of the self is something that is mm-hmm. lost, you know, and after you move past that though you wake up to this realization of exactly what you're talking about it's like oh right it's not this picture is not me my consciousness is not the sun casting light through the dark solar system it's quite i'm i'm amidst the river of chaos not not the one causing it and i think that that opens up this level of compassion and care and uh, a deeper uh, communication with uh, you know ideas of selflessness and um unification that uh, it just it takes that that crossover period and those growing pains i think very much like uh, altruism would in order to to understand an experience but once you do the benefits for your own experience and uh, and the rest of humanities are exponential 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, you know, yeah, the story is we, everyone thinks it's perfectly rational to, you know, undergo some kind of hardship in order to benefit yourself at a later date. Um, you know, you go to the dentist and maybe you don't really enjoy that very much, but you've got the benefit of having nicer teeth later into your life. Um, but if you start to appreciate that there isn't this fundamental distinction between persons, there's no kind of, you know, Cartesian soul in my mm -hmm. body and Cartesian soul in yours that makes us these fundamental things, then I think you are led to this conclusion that, well, if it's irrational for me to inflict some hardship on myself to benefit myself at a later date, well, surely it's also then rational for me to inflict some hardship on myself in order to um, benefit others. Um, you know, I should just ultimately weigh the interests of everyone equally. And that's an extremely radical notion. Mm. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it is at the same time kind of, you know, fairly enlightening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly, certainly is. Um, so do you have like an, a, a vision? I don't know if you ever get into any visionary type of ideas, but a vision for what a fully altruistic society might look like, you know, whether that be in five, you know, five or 10 or 50 or a thousand years. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, my, yeah, I think sadly it might well be kind of a long, a long time off. Um, I mean, I do think that the ideal society is where one in which, you know, people can kind of get together and, um, formulate kind of rules and um, kind of regulations by the state such that at least on a kind of global scale, altruism actually has to fall, like can fall away. Mm -hmm. You know that just by kind of operating in the framework that you've sent, set for yourself, um, you're going to end up doing kind of exactly the best thing. Um, I think we're very far away from that, um, uh, from that scenario, but that's kind of the scenario I kind of ultimately want us, um, to get to. Uh, I mean, and I think that would lead, um, that, you know, would be radically different. I mean, I think it would involve, uh, individual countries, um, being, you know, far more journalists. I mean, most importantly in terms of how they trade with other countries, mm -hmm. even more importantly, again, perhaps in terms of not going to war with other countries. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then certainly, you know, uh, development assist assistance, um, too. Uh, I also think it would involve, um, a huge amount of effort thinking, um, working on ensuring that we actually preserve civilization over the next few hundred years where, you know, if again, we're thinking impartially and thinking, yeah, we want to count everyone's interests equally. Well, the vast majority of people who will ever live exist in the future. Um, you know, there's been a hundred billion mm. human beings ever, um, you know, about a hundred, you know, 93 billion of them in the past, 7 billion alive today. But the number of people who might exist in the future is measured in the trillions of people. I think it's just this kind of vast future we have in front of us. Um, and yet because, you know, we've had very rapid economic progress, which has been terrific in terms of improving the lot of um, people alive today, but it also creates some risks, especially with the development of, um, you know, dangerous technologies, technologies that can be used as weapons, nuclear weapons being mm -hmm. the most obvious of them. Um, and so I actually think that the biggest change that would happen if people became truly kind of impartially benevolent 
would be how that we think about our um, situation today in relation to people in the future, where we think very much about what we're doing as um, kind of holding this fragile candle for future generations mm -hmm. and being very, very cautious about ensuring that we don't, you know, lead to the collapse of, you know, civilization. And that would mean um, being extremely proactive about ensuring peace and cooperation between different countries and then ensuring um, that the sort of technology we develop um, is the sort of technology that can actually, you know, uh, benefit people very greatly and being very, very cautious about technology that has the potential to inflict large amounts of harm. You know, like nuclear weapons as an example, but going into the future, the ability to design new viruses um, uh, and other potentially dangerous technologies is something we would be you know, extremely worried about, I think. It's really a poetically striking image you you mentioned when you said holding the candle for future generations of humanity. That's that's a wonderful wonderful image. And <laughs> I really hope that the um, current political situations do not uh, blow that candle out in the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but I think actually, I mean, that is a good application of optimism today as well. Where I do really worry about the increasing levels of partisanship. Where. Um, there's just, you know, increasingly and over time, people separating into, you know, the left-wing tribe and the right-wing tribe and the dynamic being one of war rather than cooperation, um, where, and people then only listening, you know, only people, only listening to people in their own tribe and so on. Um, that seems like a very bad dynamic for us to be going down. Mm -hmm. um, and I think increased levels of, altruism, you know, it means increased levels of trying to benefit other people, um, but then also just increased levels of really trying to understand why other people have, um, you know, very different moral or political views with you, and an ability to uh, kind of cooperate with people, even if they do have very different moral and political views from you, even if you find those views actually quite distasteful. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of having a flourishing society in the long run, the absolutely crucial thing is the ability for people with really quite different views to be able to work together. Absolutely. And I think one of the, the things that's a bit um, challenging to me, I was just recently thinking about this, is that in different binary ways of you know political viewpoints, often the type of awareness and flexibility of... Um, stepping away from that that identified camp of thought and saying you know what well i don't i don't appreciate this person's ethics and so therefore i won't support him or her simply because they identify with the same political camp uh i won't support them because of their ethical uh, decision making or or um, you know wh what they've displayed <clears throat> and that flexibility begins to shift however uh, and not to paint with large brushstrokes and generalize here, but uh, for political parties, per perhaps who are a bit older and who are suffering, uh, you know, the last dying gasps of, of very old ideas uh, with uh, large velociraptor nails scraping into the ground as their ideologies fall off mm -hmm. the edge of the cliff. Um but basically, you know, outside of the just the silliness of what I was just saying, the the fear-based 
type of uh, belief systems and, and political systems that base around, you know, society is changing and uh, mm -hmm. there's a group of people who don't want society to change and they don't want to change with it because in my opinion, their reality has not changed since those yep, ideas yep. in which they are holding on to so closely. So what's happening is that as society changes, the, um, their ideas are becoming uh, not valid anymore. And so mm -hmm. it makes them feel like they are not becoming valid anymore because it's the symbols that they use to identify their reality, right? And so as you know, a society tells these people, hey, you know, things are changing. Uh, they disagree with that because they say, well, no, no, no. The more that you say things are changing, the more it literally feels like you're taking away my reality and therefore they yeah. feel like they're dying. And so then therefore they go into protective fight mode and, and fight or flight mode. Yeah. And the, the challenging thing with that is that since that's a fear-based model of thinking, um, and it's also a very self-centered model of thinking, in my opinion, that to get those people to sidestep those type of political beliefs in, in the face of a higher ethical um, good for society will be a challenge. I think it is a big challenge. I mean, it's remarkable to me how on both the left and the right, there's this incredibly common belief that the world is getting worse. Um, and obviously they have different stories about why the right believes it's the erosion of traditional values. The left believes it's kind of a rise of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and actually, as an aside, I think when this has been studied, people systematically believe that the world was best around about the time of their youth <laughs> and has gotten worse <laughs> since then. And that's just robust across, you know, no matter how old someone is, it's the good old days were when they were young, uh -huh. which suggests that that's maybe more about the spectacles they're wearing rather than the reality that they're looking at. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, so one of the messages that I think we can actually try and get across is just, um, this is just not to do at all. Um, by every objective measure you look at, um, you know, people's incomes, uh, even global, in, you know, global equality, um, the world is getting more equal, people are getting the poor, the number of people in extreme poverty is decreasing radically, life expectancy has increased by 50% in the last 70 years. Um, infant mortality is down to an absolute fraction of what it was. Um, you know, technology means that we've got, you know, a far wider array of experiences to choose from than ever before. I think that really kind of undermine, you know, serves to undermine the fear that can motivate, you know, a wide variety of different moral views. Instead, what we should be saying is like, hey, actually, kind of liberal democracy is working really well. Mm -hmm. And given that we're a bunch of just like, you know, talking monkeys <laughs> with, oh, yeah. who, who wear suits and have these pretensions of being able to, um, you know, be more rational than other animal species. We're actually doing this like a remarkable thing, which is actually being able to flourish civilization. You, we should be very surprised this is possible at all. And so instead we should see like, look, actually some of these things, liberal democracy has just been working very well. Um, and then, you know, how can we capitalize on that? rather than constantly being scared of um, uh, rather than constantly being scared of um, this you know often mysterious kind of enemy whether that's 
um, you know, extreme Islam or whether that's like neoliberalism mm-hmm. or, you know, there's just often these kind of boogeymen that never refer to kind of individuals, um, but are the scary monster that justifies, um, that justifies this whole kind of political ideology. I think we should uniformly be skeptical of that. And so I think, you know, my general tendency is if you're going to disagree with something, disagree with an individual person's views, actually generally not even an individual person, but just like one specific view rather than trying to create this kind of grand meta narrative or ideology that you're kind of fighting against, because that's often just, you know, often it's a fiction. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And those, those boogeymen, as you described, are so uh, challenging to find. And as a matter of fact, they can't be found because the thing that's creating them is all of the, the pieces of the ego that of the individual who, who are, you know, have a a reality predicated upon fear and uh, things like that. So they've created an image, an illustration, uh, you know, subjectively of what that looks like, and then go around trying to find shapes that are close enough to that to direct what ultimately is their own personal fear uh, into, you know, external objects or themes or, or individuals, uh, which is, uh, it's just unfortunate yeah. and it's, it's sad and not helpful. Uh, do you, do you think that the, and, and I, t- I totally feel you on and agree with you on the sense that, you know, the world seems to be from what I can tell and observe in such a more healthy state than it, it has been as far as the world population goes. And when you mentioned earlier about, Oh, I've got to go to the dentist, you know, it, you know as far as a focusing thought goes, and they say, mm-hmm. but you know, the the upside of that, the good thing about it, outside of the inconvenience or the the lack of comfort, is it'll have healthy teeth. I had a a, a funny parallel thought because I don't like going to the dentist uh, in the sense that it's just weird. You know, like being a human is weird enough, as you said. <laughs> being a hairless yeah. monkey floating in space is already strange, and then mm-hmm. going and having another uh, alien like probe around <laughs> in your mouth is is just is bizarre. <laughs> Uh, and so I don't, I don't like that, but, um, <laughs> I, I've got to where I try to have fun with it. Um, but anyway, yeah. you know, but I was thinking like, as far as countries that are, um, still, you know, emerging and, and having social problems is the amount of people and It's such a common thing to say, I don't like going to the dentist, the amount of people in, you know, Westernized countries they're saying, oh, I don't like going to the dentist. And actually, I often put it off because I don't like the inconvenience or the discomfort. But man, can you imagine someone in one of these countries who are, or, or places that are uh, struggling so much financially and that they've literally got broken teeth or you know tooth decay, rotting gum, and to, you know, to them to be like, oh, yeah, I don't want to go to the dentist because it's an inconvenience. You know, yet, yep. they're, <laughs> yet they're going through their life with an immense pain because it's just simply not an option. It's it's just such a, a, a striking contrast between the levels of comfort and simplicity uh, that we have as opposed to people who are, who are truly suffering. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of one of my favorite memes, the First World Problems meme. Mm-hmm. Um, where people, and it you know ties back to the S idea of gratitude as well, where people can get so annoyed that someone at Starbucks misspelt their name on the coffee cup or something. <laughs> Whereas you know the fact, even the fact that they could just go into a store and get clean water, um, is like would be you know a miracle for so many people around the world. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really mind bending, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So the last last thing I want to 
talk to you about a little bit is the um, 80,000 hours uh, mm -hmm. foundation that you set up or uh, program, yeah. I'm not sure what the right word. Um, uh, yeah, 80,000 hours. It's a non-profit. Non-profit, okay. Uh, that's an, a, a, a fantastic idea. I think that people that beginning their lives, you know, in, in this idea speaks of, of course, taking, using your career, you know, you've got 80,000 hours in your lifetime of your career and doing that something uh, that will result in, you know, good for yourself, good for the rest of humanity and positive social and global impacts. Um, I think that one of the issues that people have, at least it, from my experience and from what I've heard is that, you know, the structure of our, our life script is that we, you go to school and then whenever you're, you know, 18 years old, you choose what you're going to do, you know, when you go to university. Mm -hmm. And then from there, that's the trajectory. You're kind of stuck. We've got this degree and you're stuck in some ways in this trajectory of expertise. Um, having that, that those fundamentals available, I think, especially for younger people who are trying to figure out what to do with their life's work is, I think, an incredible idea. And I would yeah. love for you to just talk about that idea and um, just everything around it. Yeah, I mean, I think you've really put your finger on it where, you know, I get, yeah, I had to choose what undergraduate degree I would do age, um, I think, actually 17. And I mean, I was an idiot. <laughs> no idea what to do. And yet I had this, you know, to make decisions that would affect the entirety of my life. And I think then when people leave university too, they often feel completely overwhelmed because up until the, that point, they've been in these railroad tracks um, where, you know, the next increment of success is, um, you know, measurable and, uh, short term, and it's all very kind of clear what they can do to kind of advance. And then um, at that, after that point, suddenly it's all open. And what's fascinating is how the kind of traditional industries, um, finance and management consulting and accounting and so on, really capitalize on that fact, where they try to make the um, early stages of um, careers in those industries to be just like doing well at university and doing well at high school but before that, where again, you've got kind of very clear um, measures of success, you know, applying to um, work at one of these firms is just like applying to university and so on. Um, and you can get this the assurance that, okay, yeah, you're doing kind of well. And what we noticed, so going back to 2011, when we co-founded 80,000 Hours, which refers to the number of hours you typically work in your life. Well, we noticed this creates this incredible distortion and bias where people are just kind of overwhelmed, somewhat scared. I certainly was. And they don't know what to do. Loads and loads of people at this stage really do want to make their, use their career in order to make the world a better place. But then they've got these kind of two options. One is the traditional career paths where, um, you know, you've got kind of guarantee of social capital and a good income and, you know, most importantly of all getting rewarded for doing well and achieving. Um, or if you want to just try and have a big impact, it's just completely open. You know, you've got to address all of these philosophical questions. It's very hard to know what to work for and so on. And so we wanted to try and address that gap a bit and talk to those people who really do want to use their career to do good 
um, but currently don't know how. And so we do this with a few means. So we've got an online guide and a bunch of resources, including some interactive tools. We've often done, you know, incredibly in-depth um, investigations into the relevant empirical literature and even sometimes philosophical literature too, um, in order to address issues like, you know, how actually do you get job satisfaction? How um, uh, how important is it to open quotes follow your passion? What are the most pressing kind of moral problems of our time, and what are ones that you know maybe are very important but aren't as neglected, perhaps? Um, so we've tried to really investigate that as much as possible. Then we also have some amount of one-on-one -on -one advice. Um, we've you know we're unfortunately incredibly limited in that in virtue of being a small team. We do some one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, and then we also actually have a podcast, the Eighty Thousand Hours Podcast. Uh, that enables us to kind of talk to people um, who are specialists in some of the areas and industries that we think of as, you know, highest priority and enable people to really kind of get up to speed on, you know, if you really care the mo most about, say, if it's extreme poverty or if it's benefiting the very long run future and ensuring that civilization flourishes. You know, you can hear in-depth interviews with um experts in those areas so you can work out okay yeah how can i best fit um in that field mm -hmm. yeah that's that's really a remarkable uh thing that you've put together uh and i think that you know you know, honestly i feel like it's it's almost uh cutting edge in a way that it might even take people a while to really grasp the power of what you all have put forward with that um uh yeah i mean i think so i remember um first telling my mom that I was working on the ethics of career choice and she just didn't get it. She was like, that's an ethical decision. Uh -huh. That's the biggest decision you're going to make in your life. Of course it's, you know, of course it's an ethical one. Of course we can think about, um, you know, how to do good or not. Um, and is, you know, it's a very hard thing that we're trying to address, you know, all the different ways you can, um, careers you can pursue and given all people's different skill sets and experiences and backgrounds, what's the thing that you can do that will have the biggest positive impact on the world? You know, what general claims and comments can we make about that? Um, it's a very hard thing to do, but, you know, over the last uh, six years since we launched it, um, we've had, um, I feel like we've made, you know, a huge amount of progress in terms of understanding that question and being able to give people general advice. Um, and it's, you know, it has really taken off, especially across college campuses um, around both, the US and the UK and some other countries like Canada and Australia. Um, and it does seem to be really resonating with people. I do just think that the we're getting to the stage where people feel like, yeah, I you know, know I'm going to have a pretty happy life, whatever level of wage I'm on, for example. Um, but I want to do as much good as I, you know, I want to have a real positive impact. That's actually the most important thing for me in terms of my career choice. And then also accepting that doesn't merely mean working for the nonprofit. There are very, very many ways of having a big positive impact mm -hmm. and actually intellectually curious about thinking through those different the different considerations in favor of you know nonprofit work versus research versus policy work versus entrepreneurship um, versus you know being an ambassador for important ideas like yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do expect this kind of interest and pursuit of altruistic careers to just grow and grow. Mm. 
That's that's really wonderful. And I hope that people listening, I know that as far as you know, listeners go, there's a lot of young people uh, listening and trying to figure out those very things. So I think it's a perfectly timed uh, type of thing for people to come across as they're deciding what they're going to do uh, in those larger steps of their life. Absolutely. Well, uh, William, thank you so much for your time and for coming on and sharing all of your ideas. I really genuinely believe that everything you're putting forward is, is just really important. I think it's uh, incredibly intelligently and uh, well-balanced in, uh, uh, in its execution. And um, yeah, I just have so much respect for everything you're doing. I think you know, you dedicating all of your time and your thought to this is such a huge benefit towards our species of hairless uh, monkeys <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that have somehow figured out how to communicate across the uh, the other side of the the world uh, to each other. Um, so thank you so much for that. And I personally will. Uh, uh, absolutely commit to donating uh, some of my income uh, to your your cause so thank you for that well well fantastic that's great to hear and uh, yeah thank you so much for having me on <laughs>